Hello and welcome to Jared Radio. My name is Jesse Gutman and I'll be your host. This podcast is aimed to advance education through the study of the practice of law and legal rights. of May 24th and 25th, 2019, the Law Union of Ontario hosted its annual conference, Push Back, Drive Forward, Progressive Advocacy Against Rising Injustice. Over the next several episodes, we will be presenting material from that event. For many years, members of the Law Union of Ontario, in concert and individually, have taken action on issues of national security. The panel that you will listen to in a moment is moderated by longtime member Jack Gemmel. It's also worth mentioning Fred Ernst, who had an important role in organizing this assembly. You can reach out to Fred or get involved in the National Security Working Group of the Law Union by emailing contact at nsoicanada.org. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the panel in the words of the organizers. The rhetoric around national security and rights tends to focus on concepts of balance. It all can be difficult to assess, and in the absence of effective public accountability, how can one determine how a correct balance may be struck? That is why this panel has been convened, to seek out participants with different experience addressing issues of rights, due process, and accountability within Canada's national security regime. This discussion will focus on rights, on remedies, national security initiatives, and try to grasp the various regime facets and gaps that exist. Brenda McPhail is the director of the Privacy, Technology and Surveillance Project at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. When I looked at the, uh, the agenda, I really thought the, the title of this should have been What is Behind That Curtain? Because that's really what you face as a, each of our panelists will discuss in terms of finding out what is really going on with respect to national security. Mm-hmm. So with those brief remarks, I'll start with, uh, with Brenda. I'm the panelist who's not a lawyer. I direct the Privacy, Technology, and Surveillance Program at the CCLA, uh, but my background is academic. Um, I did a PhD in Social Implications of Technology, focusing on privacy and surveillance. So with that subject matter, you can see the interest in national security. And I'm one of the members of CCLA's national security team. My role is not um, in the courtroom, but rather in front of parliamentary committees and sort of in this public forums in terms of advocating for rights respecting national security laws. And of course, everybody, if you're interested in national security, you know that over the last four years, we've had two different omnibus national security bills introduced. Bill C-51 by the Harper government in 2015, and subsequently supposedly to fix C-51, Bill C-59 by the Trudeau government in 2017, which is currently wending its way through the Senate. So they just, the committee that studied that bill just released their report. And the theory is that that's going to go through before the election in October. 
To discuss those two bills is to discuss why national security law is complex and hard and labyrinthine. They're both omnibus bills. They both create or amend a number of laws, including laws that are fundamentally important. So they, they create and define the powers and mandates of the intelligence agencies, including CSIS, which is our human intelligence agency, and CSE, which is our signals intelligence agency, our computer hackers and spies. Um, they re regulate processes like information sharing, which is where I'm going to focus in a, in a minute, the no-fly list, um, and then they also create laws that create and bodies that are going to have accountability roles in the national security regime. So very briefly, I think it's important to frame national security in the, in the big picture by noting three things. This panel description is headed with a sentence that says something along the lines of, when it comes, it's all, national security is about balancing rights and safety. When we talk about balancing rights and security, and obviously I don't love that balancing metaphor, but it's not quite so bad talking about it in a room full of lawyers who have the sense of what a legal balancing means, rather than the general public, which sort of, I think, generally pictures a teeter-totter. <laughs> but when you talk about balancing rights and freedoms, it's important to understand what rights are implicated in the national security regime. And based, essentially, it's all of them. It's all of our charter rights. <clears throat> Privacy and dignity and autonomy and, and individual control. Freedom of expression, participation, both in democratic processes and in uh, dissent and protest. Freedom of opinion and belief. Security of the person, obviously, both from the forces that national security is designed to protect us from and from the state who's instituting the laws that are supposed to protect us. Mobility rights in relation to air travel and border crossings. Information sharing, also very important. So that's, that's the first big picture thing, is that when you're talking about national security, it's essentially every charter right we have that's implicated. The second thing about national security law is that it's really an extraordinary body of law in our jurisprudence because it's centered fundamentally, and these guys are gonna talk about it a lot more, in terms of secrecy, because it has to do with intelligence, because it has to do with espionage. A great deal of the, the processes that are authorized for our national security laws are those which are designed to take place in secret. So it's particularly important from a policy and advocacy perspective when you're talking about laws that are, in fact, enacted to protect a veil of secrecy, that the processes we go through to enact them, and that the actual wording of the law um, is at least as open and transparent and explicit as possible, and includes the kinds of provisions that we need to provide the reasonable transparency to let us see behind that curtain that Jack was that Jack was talking about, and that's a really hard fight. Typically, when a, when the Canadian Civil Liberties Association goes up before a parliamentary committee to advocate for better oversight and better review and more transparency and stronger oversight provisions, we're paired with a witness who's an insider of the, in the national security regime and consistently is, is there to say, that's what people think who don't know. 
how this works. But if you really knew how it works, if you really understood the dangers that we face, you would understand how very important it is that we maintain our, our veil. So that's the, that's the other thing about national security legislation in general, is that and national, the national security regime, is that it's the often realm of outsiders, the public, versus insiders, the security professionals and those who know. That's something that as a civil liberties organization, we think it's important to resist. And that comes down to sort of the, the third sort of major piece of framing that I think is important, which is that what we think of as a national security interest is historically and contextually framed. So that's kind of a researchy thing to say, like I'm a researcher, but it's not every tower, it's really concrete. Because the way that we define what it means to have uh, an action that undermines the security of Canada determines the rights that we have in relation to our security law, and it determines the breadth and scope of the kinds of activities that are seen to fall within that scope. So the broader the definition, the more rights are implicated, um, and the more we need to worry about whether or not the laws are understandable and comprehensible and avoidable for people who really want to exercise reasonable rights. So information sharing is where I would land to explain that. When you think of, of an action that is an, you know, implicates national security, what do you think of? What's an action that would affect national security? Crisis. A threat. Yep. Chaos. Um, the Security of Canada Information Sharing Act defines it like this, and it's a big long list. So an activity that undermines the security of Canada includes anything that undermines the sovereignty, security, or territorial integrity of Canada, or threatens the lives or the security of people or territorial integrity of Canada, or people in Canada, or any individual who has a connection to Canada, or who is outside of Canada. And then for greater clarity, it goes on to add another seven criteria, including interference with the capability of the government in relation to various kinds of intelligence activities. Espionage, of course, terrorism, they actually named the word, proliferation of nuclear weapons. And then we get down to the things that become, I think, from a civil liberties perspective, uh, more compellingly problematic, which is interference with critical infrastructure interference with the global information infrastructure, conduct that takes place in Canada and undermines the security of another state. So then that's, that's casting the net fairly wide. This is not just, when we're talking about national security, the point of that long list is we're not just talking about chaos or violence or terrorist actions. There's a whole big list of things that are included as national security risks. And this is just in one piece of our security legislation, which is about information sharing. And why that matters is that any one of those things in that long list can trigger information sharing from 111 different government agencies and institutions to 17 different bodies who are deemed to have national security roles within our government. There's one good carve-out in that big list, which is that for the purposes of the act, advocacy, protest, dissent, or artistic expression are not considered acts that undermine the security of Canada. 
except that C59 adds a, adds a proviso to that, which is that unless those, those actions are carried on in conjunction with another activity that undermines the security of Canada. So that sounds pretty circular, but basically what it means is unless you do something like interfere with in infrastructure, unless you do something like mess around with the internet, unless you do something that would affect another state. So why, as a civil liberties organization, do I point out that as particularly problematic? It's because we already know that the right to dissent and protest and political dissidence in Canada is being criminalized. We already know that that's causing attention um, from our public safety agencies. Um, and weakening the exemption for those legitimate acts of protest, we feel is deeply problematic. So this is one of the points that we've been, we've been hammering. To explain why that matters, I'm gonna tell just a little tiny story. After my colleague, Kara Zwiebel, and I presented to the Senate on CCLA's constructive criticisms, shall we say, on Bill C-59, um, I got called by a reporter, and he wanted to ask, he had a story about a man, a young father with two little kids, who had been denied boarding on a plane to go to Florida for a family vacation. He was told at the time that, that he, his wife, and his children were on a list that meant the airline could not transport them. Um, a year or a few months before that, he'd been at the Canadian border coming back from a US vacation, and he and his family had been pulled aside and extensively searched. Those two experiences together led him to question why he was getting being singled out for this kind of attention. So he actually filed an access to information request. You can do that. He filed an access to information request with the Canadian Border Service Agency to find out information about the search that he and his family had gone through. And he was surprisingly successful, and he got the notes that the border agent had taken at the time that they were he was conducting the search, if the agent was a he. And there were two words that were meaningful. One was Tuscan. And Tuscan is the name of a secret information sharing list that can, of people who are deemed national security risks that shared between Canada and the United States. And the other one was environmental. And so from those two words, this young father figured out that the fact that he had been an environmental activist for about 15 years, had been vocal, had been successful, had been nonviolent, um, but vehement in his sort of promoting his political views and standing up for his convictions in public, in places of dissent, had got him tagged and watched and now rendered unable to fly between Canada and the United States. And not only him, but his children. So he actually he wrote a letter and asked us to submit it to the Senate for him, to the committee that was considering this. And his position was that we already, based on my experience, we already know that people who have the conviction to stand up for what they believe in are being watched and penalized in the national, as national security risks. But what bothered him the most was not that he had been targeted for his work, but that somehow his children were implicated in this. 
is a little story. It's it's one person. It's one vacation. Uh, these, you know, my colleagues on the panel have dealt with much more, you know, serious cases that have been much longer lasting. But I think for me, what this story illustrates is that when we talk about national security law, it's not just the big cases. It's not just the people who have been accused of terrorist crimes. It's not an issue that goes beyond the public. It's very much case that anybody, any members of the public, um, could end up implicated in the system. And because it's a big system, and it's a complicated system, and it's a, um, it deals with both national and international arrangements, and because so much of what happens, happens in secret, all of that framing means that this is an area of law that I think deserves a great deal of advocate attention and also creates a really difficult legal environment, which now my colleagues are going to talk about. We'll next hear from Phil Tunley, who's a civil litigation lawyer who focuses specifically on remedies flowing from breaches of the charter in national security situations. So how difficult is that legal environment? So um, my perspective on our topic is courtroom perspective. That is what I do. And um, it's always terrifying to me to hear the bigger picture that you've just uh, heard alluded to. It's there, and, and I've looked at that legislation. But I deal with it really only when it rubber hits road, as it were. So my piece of this field is acting for plaintiffs in civil claims for damages when charter rights infringements are, uh, are uh, perpetrated by Canada's national security agencies. As was mentioned in the introduction, the kind introduction, I, I did deal with three Canadian citizens whose situation was very much like Mayor Arar's. It's very well known. Currently, I'm dealing with two of what are called our Canada's security certificates. Detainees. These are two individuals, not citizens of Canada, who were detained without any trial whatsoever, any charge being laid, any criminal process whatsoever, because of suspicions of uh, terrorist connection and threat to the security of Canada, who between six and eight years of imprisonment later have had their security certificates quashed as unreasonable uh, by the federal court. So two individuals in effectively in solitary confinement, allegedly for their own protection, for six to eight years is the scenario. As you know, some of you, I'm sure the Court of Appeal just rendered a decision saying that 15 days of solitary confinement is, is cruel and unusual punishment within the meaning of the Charter. So try six or eight years. I want to talk about really First of all, these cases, I want to tell you that I don't take these on. These cases come to me from co-counsel who I work with. You know, people like uh, Barbara Jackman, Lord Waldman in the immigration area, Marlis Edwards, John Norris and others in, as he then was, <laughs> in the criminal area, who, who have done the heavy lifting and usually have a finding of a charter breach. So I come into the picture when the issue really is remedies. What, what can the civil claim process do for these individuals? Let me talk about three related issues very quickly, because I think we all want to get to discussion and a question. 
So very quickly, because it's foundational, I wanted to talk about uh, the law on damages as a remedy for charter breaches. It's a relatively new area of law. I want to talk about some of the challenges involved in getting evidence in our discovery process. Any of you do civil litigation, you know discovery is fundamental. This is where we find out about the case we have to meet and the case we have to make. And when you're trying to penetrate that curtain, it's uh, there's an added layer of challenge. And finally, I was asked to talk about something called a closed material proceeding. So this is uh, a polite term for secret trials, you know, old star chamber stuff, uh, which apparently lawyers at the Attorney General of Canada see as a potential uh, tool to add to their arsenal in the law in this area. So quickly, my favorite section of the Charter is Section 24, Subsection 1. You all know it, uh, anyone whose rights or freedoms have been infringed or denied may apply to obtain such remedy as the court considers appropriate and just in the circumstances. Lovely, simple, clear language. There's lots of judicial decisions on whether and when an appropriate remedy can include damages, but just if you're noting, two of them are very important. The Vancouver and Ward is the leading case in the Supreme Court of Canada, 2010. A recent case in British Columbia, Henry versus British Columbia, is a wrongful conviction case which has effectively made the settlement and, and the exgratia payment case law from the wrongful conviction area turned it into the law of charter damages. Beautiful decision which was not appealed. It's, it's only the British Columbia Supreme Court, but it's a very well-reasoned decision. So damages, take if you take the, those cases and others and boil them down. Damages may be an appropriate and just remedy under Section 24.1 if that remedy would fulfill one of three objectives under connected to our um, The first objective is compensation, the second meaningful vindication of rights, and the third deterrence of future breaches. Now each of those are kind of code words. Compensation means Compensation for personal loss, whether it's pecuniary, physical, psychological, intangible, on the basis that we're trying to place the plaintiff in the same position as if his or her rights were not infringed. So it's, it's restorative in that sense. And the court has said this is one of the most, often the most fundamental of the three, the three objectives damages can serve. Meaningful vindication of rights, the court has defined as affirming constitutional values and addressing constitutional harms, such as impairing trust and confidence in the efficacy of our constitutional remedies and protections, or ensuring that rights are not whittled away uh, by attrition. So deterrence of future breaches, the court has said, this is to regulate behavior and basically deter and secure compliance with our Constitution by others in the same field. So the court has said in Ward that as long as a trial judge is kind of following that uh, framework, they will enjoy very broad discretion when it comes to awarding damages, the decision to do so, and the amount awarded, uh, which is probably one of the reasons why Henry was not appealed. That said, I can tell you that getting damages from CSIS or any other national security agency is, is a challenge. It, unless the charter breach is very serious, and obviously the kinds of cases I've taken on, that's a given. 
unless the, the, the images are pretty serious, uh, the chances, as opposed to the chances against an ordinary police force, are probably low. And unless the loss is large, I can tell you from personal experience, the cost of litigating these cases, cost of pursuing them, is going to be prohibitive. So the El Mati cases that we prosecuted, we were in court for nine years. Nine years to get a settlement. The government fights these cases very hard. So very quickly, three points about why it's not easy. The state has an opportunity to demonstrate factors to defeat a charter claim availability of other remedies, concerns about good governance or national security, and particularly in relation to certain legislative and policy functions that only governments have. So, you know, all the old arguments will be brought out to try and bar or reduce your claim. The other thing the court has said is that uh, damages under 24-1 are not like tort damages, not private law remedy. They're a distinct public law remedy. You have to claim them directly against the state. You cannot claim them against individuals. The underlying policy considerations that are engaged uh, when awarding uh, private law damages against state offenders may be relevant, and you have to. So you have to jump through all the hoops of crown litigation at common law and still confront the analysis of the charter. So. Just a caution, it, it is all the special rules that protect the Crown and limit its liability can be applied in these cases. The quantum uh, is governed by the same three principles. So if you look at Ward, which is basically a police, brief police detention, an overnight detention and a strip search, you're looking at damages in five to 10,000 range. If you look at Henry, 29 years, if I recall, in, uh, in a prison for, uh, crimes he did not commit, the, uh, the damage award was $7.5 million. So the range, uh, it, it's not about, there's no formula. The court says you have to kind of take care to avoid unduly high awards, but for 29 years of incarceration of a, for crimes he didn't commit, I think $7.5 million is pretty, pretty reasonable and the Crown didn't appeal it. So that's the kind of context, Those, that's the context for the claims I'm making in these cases. I want to talk about the discovery process quickly too. And obviously the, the two big hurdles to recovery, to just getting the evidence from the government to prove in court your case that your client's rights have been infringed are number one, section 38 of the Canada Evidence Act, which defines a very broad national security privilege and number two, section 18.1 of the CSIS Act, which uh, provides near absolute protection for the identity and uh, contents of the information provided by CSIS human sources. Those, I mean, there are, you have to bring applications to the federal court challenging claims to protect information under both of those sections. The, the role of public counsel, I'm public counsel, I do not look behind the black, I'm gonna go to court, Superior Court of Justice, and litigate in public. So what's crucial, and Neil is here really at my suggestion because he's one of the counsel who goes behind the curtain, the wall, looks at what's under the black, and helps the court, the justices of the federal court, to, to identify information for which improper claims of uh, privilege have been made or which 
even though the claim may be on its face proper, the public interests in disclosure outweigh, under the Ribic test, outweigh the claim for privilege. So the role of people like uh, Anil in this process, from my point of view, is critical. It's like the co-counsel I work with. I could not do these cases without Anil. In fact, you know, at the end of the day, my role is pretty, pretty modest. The example, I mean, our Al-Malki and Al-Mahdi cases, just to litigate 178 documents out of the 5,500 we had took a year. The documents, 5,500 documents with redaction, some of them hundreds of pages long, entirely black from start to finish, okay? We're to, and the Amaki do this amazing work behind the scenes of going through all of that and, and organizing for a justice of the federal court and, and helping the court to see where there are patterns of crucial information being, being withheld. So I've worked with other lawyers to develop two strategies to respond to this. The first position that I take is to say to the government, look, you cannot hide evidence of your own charter breach. That is itself unconstitutional. So again, I, in, this, in this position, and, and it's, it's uh, an early one, we're trying to use Section 24.1, the right to a remedy, to be an interim remedy to get at the information that is being withheld from us. And, and that's part of what Section 24.1 provides as a just remedy. Once you've shown a prima facie infringement of Shutterford rights, and believe me, being in jail for eight years in solitary confinement is a prima facie violation of charter rights, once you've shown that threshold, then you ought to be able to get at the evidence that, that shows why that was a wrongful act worthy of a claim to damage. So that the second is to say, okay, so you're, you're going to win some on that position. Hopefully, you're going to win some requests with Neil's help. But the second is to say, okay, there's rest of stuff you don't want to produce. It. You don't you don't want to tell me who your witnesses were, who informed on my client, and who the federal court who looked at all that stuff now says was not reasonable. You don't want to show it to me. Fine, you can't lead it in federal in the superior court. That, that information and any fruits of that information that you are keeping secret don't exist legally and can't be referred to in evidence. You can't give opinions that, well, there was ample evidence because you haven't produced it. So you're, you're silent. And, and so <laughs> this is what I call the Garofoli approach. I don't know if some of you in the criminal law will know. Garofoli is the case that says, when you've got a wiretap and, and, and you want to protect information, whether it's source information or national security information, if, it's, if the black is such that you actually can't justify the warrant based on what you can see, you have an option. You either produce the information that you don't want to produce government, or you can pull the charges. And in, in the civil context, that means we can strike your defense, basically, and, and just have a trial about the damages that are, that are at stake here. So those two strategies, I won't elaborate on them, I, I welcome comments on them, but there is case law that, that is both helpful and, and it, it's important to frame those arguments carefully, but they're there. Let me get to closed material procedure because I think this is where, this is the future, and I think because of the success uh, that, uh, you know, the counsel in the Henry case and, and our success in, in uh, the Almaty cases and others, 
governments are increasingly looking to sort of prevent us from going to court, basically. They want to have, to have their cake, like I just lead their secret evidence, but not have it be public. And, mm -hmm. and so let's, let me talk about that. There's a decision, a lovely decision, of the UK Supreme Court in a case called Al Rawi, 2011 UK Supreme Court 34. Uh, it upholds a wonderful decision of the English Court of Appeal. Both decisions are unanimous. And what it holds is that despite the, as you know, the almost unlimited scope of a superior court's inherent jurisdiction to control its own process, which has been established really since the court system was created, Superior courts, as a matter of common law, have no basis and will not, as a matter of policy, conduct trials in secret at the request of the government. They won't do it. There's no provision to do it. Uh, it's simply fundamentally contrary to our, our common law tradition, our system of justice, and the fundamental rights of parties in that system. So, you know, these are decisions that are worth reading. It goes through the history of the common law. It's a wonderful case. And there's no reason for me to doubt, if I read it, that that will be followed and applied by our superior courts here in Canada, by the courts of appeal across the country, and by the, ultimately by the Supreme Court of Canada. So, common law, you can't do this, which leaves us with parliamentary supremacy. As you know, UK and other countries have actually legislated to uh, produce systems that are working in very limited areas and having secret trials. Various cases have challenged those trial processes individually and the legislation generally under European human rights scheme, mixed results in the European Court of Human Rights. And, and unfortunately, the litigation in that regard, I think, has limited application in Canada, the rights Fine, and I'm not sure how well they would translate. But in Canada, the Proceedings Against the Crown Act uh, currently allows actions against the Crown almost entirely on the same basis as private litigant litigation. So, and it allows it in the provincial superior courts, which have no zero tolerance for secret trials on, on the basis of the Al Rawi uh, principles. So. Um, this, this is our status quo, and so you've really got to amend the, the Proceedings Against the Crown Act federally to implement any kind of uh, civil uh, secret procedure that will affect my, the, cases, the kinds of cases that I bring. And, and I have three responses to that. If they try that, I'm, I'm ready for it. Three, three arguments that I would say, first of all, in terms of our case law on on the proceedings against the Crown Act, the trend of legislation. You, you all aware that at common law, the king in the Middle Ages was completely immune from, from civil litigation. And that was eroded for the first time when the Magna Carta was passed in the 14th century. And it's been steadily eroded ever since. And the trend of the legislation throughout our history has been to increase the liability of the Crown because Litigation is, is a form of accountability in our in our democratic world. And there is a trend in the case law, including a decision of Kerry in our Supreme Court, that basically says, because, because this trend has been to open up the Crown prerogative, or diminish the Crown prerogative and open up Crown liability, essentially it's irreversible. When 
when the Parliament acts to uh, eliminate the Crown prerogative, Parliament can't put it back. It's gone forever. So there's, there's that argument that basically says, once you've opened up the Crown liability and, and production of documents to the extent we have currently, you can't, you can't go back. The second case, so that, that's maybe a weak argument, you might say. The second argument, I would say, is that particularly when you're dealing with charter rights, it's actually, in a case called Ahmed, Regina and Ahmed, uh, a few years ago, the Supreme Court basically held, we have this idea of a core jurisdiction of our superior courts under Section 96 of the DNA 1867. Remember that one from law school? Core jurisdiction, uh, part of the inalienable, untouchable core jurisdiction of our superior court is its ability to adjudicate charter rights, claims for, for relief under the charter. And of course, that's, that's got to be correct. So any kind of closed material procedure would be, in, in cases involving breaches of charter rights and damages claimed for breach of charter rights, would, I suggest, be entrenching on the core jurisdiction of the Superior Courts uh, under Section 96 and would be unconstitutional. Uh, and the third argument is just al-Rawi itself. This is fundamentally not part of our constitutional setup. It's, it's unconstitutional in itself on a, on a common law basis because our court system has developed on the basis of openness, fairness, can't, you just can't mess with that. So those are my three arguments, and, and I, I don't think any one of them is going to be determinative, and it depends how the legislation is framed and so on and so forth, but, but I do not see this legislation, uh, well, first of all, it will be challenged in, in cases like the one that I did with Clyde, and, and I don't see it surviving scrutiny. So that's my, that's my pitch. And finally, Anil Kapoor is a Toronto lawyer and notably, for this panel, a special advocate. And he will discuss that experience. Have you heard of this uh, section, the section 38 of the Canada Evidence Act? It's probably one of the worst drafted provisions, like even worse than the Tax Act. I mean, have you done any tax litigation? we spent a lot of time trying to figure out what those provisions mean, um, but certainly Section 38 uh, rivals it in terms of opaqueness. But I think what really sort of um, governs this area of law is the tension between the government saying, trust me, and on the other hand, efficacy. So to what extent do we have any, any sense that the government is doing its work? in a fair way, like to what extent is it efficacious? And, you know, uh, Brenda mentioned, you know, uh, she goes to these Senate hearings, and I think we've actually been together on one of them. Uh, and you get somebody from the government who says, well, you know, you, got, you don't understand. You need to, I'm here to tell you. So, and look at me, I'm a good guy. But when you ask yourself, when Phil gets in the piece, and Phil says, hey, wait a minute, Trust me, it's just not good enough because look at this thwack, right? Look at this litany of abuse on his clients. That sort of erodes efficacy. 
it makes us less willing to accept sort of the national security establishment's proposition that we're all in it together. So that sort of sits on top of everything. And then underneath it, in a real practical way, there's a tension between secrecy on the one hand and security on the other hand. And the question you need to ask yourself is, is the secrecy making us more secure? And you know, in some instances you might say yes, in other instances you might say no. And when I mean secure, what I mean by that, I build into that an understanding of how the government does its work, the understanding that government can operate to excess, and the understanding that government can actually do its work very well and can maintain protection of its citizens. But really, when you're confronted with these cases, when you're confronted with secrecy, ultimately, your tolerance level, in my view, for secrecy or for aggressive national security policy, which as Brenda's pointed out a number of them, and Phil has as well, that, in, that, that sort of uh, incur upon our constitutional rights or fundamental rights, your tolerance for that incursion is, if you're a policymaker, is directly related to whether you perceive yourself as a potential victim of terrorism or a potential victim of police excess. And where you put yourself on that continuum will mark your tolerance for state action. And when all of you are ultimately sitting around the cabinet table someday and you have to make decisions, mark yourself on that continuum and guard against that bias. So when I talk to ministers about this or over at the service, it's sort of like, Oh my God, this isn't revolutionary stuff, right? It's just marking your own sense. But inside, there's a feeling that, a feeling that we, we really are doing the nation's business. And we, we really, we being the national security establishment, are really, really protecting people. And self-reflection, self-criticism isn't necessarily in vogue, doesn't necessarily have a tremendous amount of currency. And you can know this, you know this, from CERC, right, the Security uh, Intelligence Review Committee, which is really kind of, an, uh, kind of a nothing. Right? It's sort of like a paper tiger. I mean, they do closed reports. We used to have the Inspector General. Now we're going to have a new agency. But the real question is whether, or not, I'm like the Parliament Committee of Parliamentarians. The real question is, what impact does it have? How does it regulate behavior? So you're, at, you're left with guys like Phil, who brings civil litigation, says you got to pay, and I hate to say it, but money talks, bullshit walks, mm -hmm. and so that's really what, and, and this close, and you know it, you know this, you know this because the whole drive to close material proceedings began with Iraq. It's all about the government feeling that they cannot defend themselves. That, that, that these folks are getting windfalls. Like if we could put forward, says the government, our due diligence that we did, all the intelligence that we knew from all our allies, no one would ever find this line. Or the damages would go way down. And so the government says, I'm between a rock and a hard place. I can't reveal this intelligence because our, colleague, our allies will, won't let us. And in the intelligence world, as you know, the, the party that provides the intelligence is the owner of the intelligence. So 
if we get it from the Brits, the Brits own it, regardless of where the Brits got it from. And I can't use it unless the Brits say, you can use it. That kind of control over the dissemination of intelligence pervades the entire establishment. So they sit there and they say, they being the government of Canada, I'm in a rock and a hard place, I can't defend myself. And these guys are getting away, you know, we've got to pay them a big, huge amount of money, and you know, they're all getting windfalls. But it all began with Iran. And you'll remember Arar. The liberals weren't prepared to pay Arar. It was Harper who paid Arar. And why did he do it? It was a campaign promise. It wasn't all of a sudden he got religion. But what's interesting is that has caused all of this. So the closed material proceedings that uh, Phil mentioned, they have them in the UK. It's, it's established by statute. We, we have a much more challenging, well, we have a constitutional environment. They don't. But um, it's challenging in our jurisdiction to be able to create for the reasons that Phil advanced. There are good arguments for why it would be unconstitutional. In addition to what Phil has to say, one thing to think about is access to justice. And I don't mean having a special advocate, although I'm happy to help Phil when I can. I mean the client's access to justice. It's important for the client to be able to go to court, sure, but it's important for the client to know, to know. And the differential here, this isn't criminal litigation, where in criminal litigation, it would never, ever, ever happen. You could never run a criminal, you could not do diplomat courts here. This wouldn't happen. And everybody, a lot of people think, well, civil litigation, it's not the same. Well, I'm here to ask you to think about access and knowledge, whether those concepts are bound in Section 7, liberty, security of the person, fundamental justice, and, and, this is public litigation. It's about accountability. It's anchored fundamentally in democratic norms of holding government to account. So the question you should think for yourself is when you get the brief, when you're thinking about challenging closed material proceedings, you will have called Phil, but he will be sitting on the Court of Appeal. You'll have to Think about the constitutional challenges. And I think the concept of accountability is really crucial. And so when you deal with these closed proceedings, these Section 38 proceedings, or even in security certificate cases, uh, you know, Phil alluded to the amount of material. There is a tremendous amount of material depending on the case you have. And you know, I don't get the benefit of my juniors to help me. I gotta do it. I do the binding. It's like I'm a student. I don't look like I'm a student. Um, well preserved as I am. Uh, but, but, you know, I'm sitting there at the binding machine, you know, getting the heat tan. And it's ridiculous at my price point for that to happen. So I brought an application to have my junior, who's top secret, to have, to have her do what my junior normally, what she normally does from a regular crime case. And um, the government opposed it. Even though it would be the fraction of the cost. So it's really kind of bizarre. When you, when you look at this, I go to a closed proceeding. It's me right, on one side. And you got at least four or five lawyers on the other side. I did a motion in federal court where it was me and 12 justice lawyers across the court. I mean, it, it's, 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 well, but it still wasn't, was a, public a, public it still wasn't a fair fight. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the other thing I wanted to underscore for you is, you know, when we talk about state action or executive action, in terms of uh, service investigations, warrants, and such. 
uh, or sharing of intelligence in terms of managing the, security, the national security threat. Because the national security threat is real, it exists, it's not a figment of anyone's imagination, but it's not something that's going to go away. It is something that is a product of many, many years, some would say decades, maybe even more than, more than a century. It's a remnant of colonization and everything else. But it's a real thing, and we can't pretend it doesn't exist. The government will never get rid of it, or Western governments. They just have to manage the threat. And it has to be managed in a way that allocates for not ensnaring the father who's an environmentalist protester. So how do you do it? How do you sort of, I sort of call it the you know, noise to signal ratio. How do you reduce the noise to signal ratio? So you're really getting where it matters. That's very difficult. Very difficult. The excesses are when the noise to signal ratio is out of whack. You've got a lot of noise and not much signal. But you think there's you think there's a Bee Gees song in there somewhere. Okay. Which in anyone's book would be a threat to national security. <laughs> um, so so it's about proof. And it's about how intelligence agencies view proof. Now we're all lawyers. We've got an idea of what proof means. We do this forensic work all the time. And those of you that are criminal lawyers, you're dealing with proof beyond a reasonable doubt. You've got all our rules of evidence are designed to sort of vet through for reliability, essentially. None of those, none of those sort of uh, uh, procedures or structures animate or influence how an intelligence officer thinks. Or what an intelligence officer does when they decide to do something, or they decide to take executive action, or they decide to get a warrant. And also, a good analog to this is police officers. Police officers aren't sitting around thinking of themselves, oh, well, this is hearsay evidence, I'm not going to investigate it. And I'm also here to tell you that all police work, almost all police work, and a lot of intelligence work, if not almost all intelligence work, starts off with stereotypes. I mean, you can't begin something without a stereotype. People come with a frame of reference. And as much as we want to say, oh, there's no racial profiling, there's no this, there's no that, that's always there. It's the beginning, and it's kind of like, it depends on how good your investigators are to the extent to which they are able to sort of work against the, those prejudices. But it all begins somewhere. You got a hunch on something, and what's a hunch? Right? Seems to be more about our stereotypes and how we perceive human nature. So the real challenge is to, under, is to sort of mark the difference between what intelligence community does in terms of their state action and the sort of things that they think are persuasive, their reliability norms. What's that, in, what, what's that standard like compared to the known standard that we have, which is, a, which is reliability for purposes of evidence, for purposes of court action, for purposes of, for, for purposes of judicial pronouncements? And you, the trick in 38, Section 38 litigation, and the trick also I think once you, if you ever get into a civil trial on these things, because the rules of evidence are a bit looser there, I mean, they theoretically apply, is you cannot port intelligence norms of reliability into, and into a judicial process and have them overwhelm well-known, well-understood notions of reliability in a judicial process. So to the extent that the intelligence community goes around and they get their warrants at the federal court, and you know those, they're issuing warrants all the time, and there's no visibility over that, that's their process. That's their form of gathering evidence for them to be able to advise government. And they advise government on all kinds of things. 
not only terrorism, but you know, all kinds of things like espionage, like you know, state actors that are trying to steal our commercial secrets. The government the ministers get advice from the service on trade policy, like what would be the implications of a particular kind of trade policy. So there's always an intelligence briefing that accompanies these things. That's fine in that realm. But when they decide to pick someone off on a security certificate or engage some executive action that infringes someone's liberty directly, I don't mean invasion of privacy like Brenda was saying for a minute, then when you're going to review it and you're going to make a decision as a, as a trial judge on the appropriateness of what took place, you must maintain that firewall between reliability in the judicial process reliability in the intelligence side. And sometimes, sometimes that firewall is proven. And when that happens, people are going to not be treated fairly. And courts can't transact in a standard that's an alien to their task. I mean, the reliability standard in the intelligence side is fit for that purpose. At least, let's assume that. But it's definitely not what our judges should be. And one area I will tell you where it's very controversial, but one area where that's clear is cruel, inhumane, degrading treatment. It is clear that our courts cannot accept evidence as the problem of that. There is a vibrant debate as to whether or not the intelligence community should be able to receive that information and rely on it for their purposes, provided that they properly weight it and mark it as such. Now, our minister has said you can't even do that. But before, sorry, before Minister Goodell did that, they were totally free to re receive that information, included in their intelligence. And just to give you an indication of how opaque it is, they may get information that says that, you know, Eel Kapoor was in Boston on March 23rd, and it comes from the Americans. But that's all they would know. They wouldn't know how the Americans got it. And the backstory might be that the Americans got it from a non-allied agency. Let's say the Syrians, let's say the Pakistanis. And, and the Americans might not even know how the Pakistanis got it, whether it was in an interrogation. And if it's in an interrogation, you could probably imagine there would be some heavy-handedness. To sort of unpack it and get back to what the source of the information is, it's very difficult to do. Very difficult with certainty to know, which is what prompts uh, an attempt by the executive to sort of say, be very, very careful in, in consuming this information. But from an alternate perspective, I wonder whether we should be restricting it in that way. Like for intelligence purposes, isn't it important to know information if you're in charge of the intelligence agency and your responsibilities to advise government? Guilty, but I'd like crimes to get solved. So when you look at it from that perspective, it's not such an easy straight up and down one plus one equals two situation. The area is complicated factually. I don't think doctrinally it's all that complicated, ultimately. I don't think national security privilege is a complicated thing for judges. To, I don't think it requires a tremendous amount of expertise either. It requires some expertise if you're sitting you know, on the commercial list and you're trying to do, do the Air Canada pension uh, resolution, pension fund resolution, that's complicated. Um, these, these are principles that are well known to us. It's just the factual narratives that are complicated that require you to exercise judgment. And exercising judgment in that context comes with a degree of uncertainty as to the correctness of the judgment you make. But that's 
you're sitting as the trial judge, that's why you get paid that amount of money. And if you're sitting there as the director of the service and you have to make those decisions, that's why you get paid that amount of money. And we hope that we have people in senior positions that take their constitutional obligations seriously. Because if they don't, as my clerk Lucy says, the fish stinks from the head. So that's all I have to say. <laughs> all right. Uh, just before we get to just two, two brief things. Uh, first of all, Jessica Orkin, who did then, uh, was blessed to be here, sends a regret she couldn't make it. Uh, she would have given us the account of 20 years trying to pry an OPP report from the government with respect to a, a botched murder investigation, which uh, dated back to 1983. Took 20 years of resistance by the government till finally the report was pretty well entirely released. And just the second point I just want you to think of, uh, there's always talk of accountability and balance in this area. The question is, how can you have balance when you don't know what's on the other path? That's a simple point. How can you have accountability when you don't know what they've done? And these are the uh, central issues with respect to my view with national security. And these are not to criticize the people who do work in this area, but is to show you the tremendous problems of having any kind of meaningful democratic checks and balances to it. So, on that cheery note. Yes, it's that unfortunate time when the podcast comes to an end. You've been listening to the Jured Podcast. That is... J-U-R hyphen E-D. The name comes from the Jured Foundation. You can email us at J-U-R-E-D foundation at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, J-U-R underscore E-D. You can check our website, juredfoundation.wordpress.com. Or just subscribe to us. We're on most podcast distribution networks. Looking forward to getting ideas, feedback, commentary, recipes, anything of your fancy. Just say hello or simply tune in next time for more interesting material from Ontario and beyond, understanding our world through the lens of legal systems. Thank you so much and à la prochaine.